This morning, we officially begin the backstretch of the book of Genesis. We've been in Genesis now for 20 sermons. Can you believe it? I can. And we have six more to go in the series until we reach the end, chapter 50. So these last six weeks, we are going to race down the backstretch of Genesis like a thoroughbred at Churchill Downs. And if you don't know that analogy, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you about the great Commonwealth of Kentucky and the Kentucky Derby. But before we get to Genesis 37 in this last major section of the book, we need to tie up some loose ends and do some housekeeping. And we're going to do so at a 40,000 foot level. So flip back to Genesis 35 and 36. And we're going to take a few minutes now to tie up some loose ends from the Jacob account. If you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 35, the word of God came again to Jacob. You know, in light of the sin that we saw in Jacob and in his family last week. This is nothing short of remarkable grace. God called Jacob to go back to Bethel, which, if you remember, is the, is the location that God first appeared to him, the angels ascending and descending in his, in his dream. God appeared to Jacob there after he swindled Esau out of his father's blessing. And at Bethel, he, he promised Jacob and affirmed that all the promises that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac would be Jacob's and that the Lord would be with him wherever he went. And then in turn, Jacob made a vow to the Lord that he would build a house for the Lord, right? And Bethel means house of God. And then tie the tenth of what he owned. And so I think what God is doing here at the beginning of chapter 35 is calling Jacob to do what he vowed, to go back to Bethel to fulfill that vow that he had made so many years earlier. I think the focal verses of this chapter and this flyover as we see it are verses 9 to 12. God appears to Jacob once again, just as he had done in chapter 28, and he blesses Jacob, just as he had done during the, the wrestling match with Jacob at Peniel. And so it seems to bring these two events together, the appearance of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord. And he reaffirms to Jacob, hey, your name is now Israel. It's no longer Jacob. And then notice in verse 11, he once again assures Jacob of the Abrahamic promise that from his offspring will, become a, will be a nation and a company of nations and kings shall come from his body. Just amazing promises to Jacob. And yet as much as this affirmation or reaffirmation of the Lord's covenant promises must have thrilled Jacob's heart, if you were to take time to read this chapter this afternoon, which I would encourage you to do, you would see the sorrow that marked this time of his life. Verse 8 introduces us to Deborah, his mother Rebekah's nurse, who must have traveled with Jacob's entourage from Padam Aram, and she died just as soon as we're introduced to her, we're introduced to her in her death. She died and was buried near Bethel. Because of this woman's connection to Jacob's mother, she must have been very close to him. Because Jacob named the tree where she was buried, Alone Bakuth, the Oak of Weeping. And then as Jacob's family traveled from Bethel, his beloved wife, Rachel, tragically died while giving birth to a son. According to verse 18, Rachel, in her last moments of life, named her son Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob, not wanting his son's name to be the constant reminder of Rachel's death, mercifully renames him Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, chapter 35, we learn of the death of Isaac at 180 years old. 
In verse 29, Moses describes the death of Isaac in the exact way that he described the death of Abraham. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And yet these days weren't just sorrowful for Jacob because of multiple deaths in his family. In verse 22, there's this seemingly random yet incredibly sad detail of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, scandalously sleeping with Bilhah, who, if you remember, was Rachel's servant, whom she gave Jacob as a surrogate wife. Follow all that? So this seems like a power play on Reuben's part to humiliate his father and assume stature in the family. And as we'll see later in Genesis, by this very act, Reuben disqualified himself from receiving the inheritance of the firstborn. Scan your eyes over to chapter 36 in this flyover. In chapter 36, we see the genealogy of Esau, the older brother of Jacob, the progenitor of the Edomites, who had become the historic enemies of God's people. Sadly, just a cursory reading of this chapter shows us, friends, that Esau continued to despise God's promises. He married Canaanite wives and then eventually moved outside the land of promise. Friends, God had blessed Esau with incredible possessions and riches and land and children, and yet Esau never acknowledged God at all. Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis wrote, when Esau left the land, he walked out of the record of saving history. It's a chilling moment. Friends, the life of Esau is a sad commentary on what it means to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. Esau's life serves as a warning for living a life apart from God. This list in Esau's descendants, it seems impressive, right? Man, there are, there are a lot of names, 73 of them in all. And that, that list dwarfs the list of Jacob's family just prior to that in chapter 35. If you scan your eyes in chapter 36 from verse 15 on, you'll see that Esau's line became chiefs and kings. It's impressive. And yet notice the contrast between this impressive list of descendants in chapter 36 with how Moses begins chapter 37, our text for this morning. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Friends, this is the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. There's a difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The world values human might and power, but God delights to shame those things through his power and might, which is at work to bring about his plan of salvation through a man and his 12 sons in the tiny parcel of land called Canaan. Now take a deep breath. All that housekeeping that flyover leads us to our primary text today, Genesis chapter 37. Let's read our text. We're going to read the whole story, the whole account, verse 2 down to verse 36. Deep breath taken. All right, here we go. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. 
And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to, to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Then Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said one to another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of our pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him from out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this, is, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, the officer, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. 
1977, Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi, lost his 14-year-old son Aaron to progeria, a rare disease that causes dramatic and premature aging among children. Apparently, not only did this tragedy break Kushner's heart, it confronted him with the problem of human suffering and evil in the world. And so in response to his loss, Kushner wrote the famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner concluded that because suffering and evil exist side by side in a world created by a good and loving God, then God must be limited in his power to prevent evil. Oh yeah, sure, God is benevolent, but he's clearly not powerful enough to have prevented evil from entering the world. If that were the case, he would have done it. Even though God is well-intentioned, he's not capable of preventing all human suffering or else he would do that. He's loving, but he's not omnipotent. So at the end of the day, the way Kushner tries in the book to, to comfort suffering people is that, oh, don't blame God since he tries his best, but he's severely limited. So with God's help, they can get through the suffering and be better people on the other side. Well, friends, the aim of this message this morning is not to address the problem of evil nor to investigate every theory of God's relationship to evil and suffering in the world. But I wanted to bring Kushner's perspective to the forefront because I think it's common in a lot of people in the world today who even say they believe in God. At best, God is the divine superhero who rushes in to save the day when all seems lost. And at worst, he's like the cheerleaders in the sports games I played in growing up. He'll offer some bouncy words of encouragement from the sidelines, but he's incapable to do anything about what's happening in the game. But friends, that is not how the Bible portrays our God. He's not the benevolent but limited Santa Claus figure of Kushner's book. Nor is he the reactionary superhero of Marvel movies. No, he's the king of heaven and earth whose sovereignty and authority and power superintend and govern all things for his wise and good purposes. The Bible consistently teaches us that the evil things in the world, the bad things, like suffering and injustice, are under God's domain and used by God to accomplish his good ends. And there may be no greater example of that in the Old Testament than Genesis 37 to 50. In fact, all 14 chapters really do contribute to this dominant theme. God providentially guides. All things fall under his gracious providence. That's what we're going to see in these chapters again and again and again as God fulfills his promises through his providence. In fact, one of the challenges from preaching several sermons in this passage of Scripture is to make them sound different from each other because the entire Joseph story preaches this theme. God is in control of all events, and he providentially directs every circumstance for his people's good and for his glory. Now, before we go farther, I think it would help us to define what I'm talking about. I think we need to define providence. Providence isn't just the capital of Rhode Island, okay? Nor is it just shorthand for God. We mean something very specific when we say that. Listen how John Calvin described it. He said, Providence is not that by which God idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth, but that by which as keeper of the keys, he governs all events. Yes and amen. 
Or how about the words of our statement of faith? Our very document that upholds our teaching here at the, here at the church. We believe that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. However, God is not in any way the author or approver of sin, nor does He destroy the free will and responsibility of mankind. There's a lot there. Did you catch that? What is God's providence? It corresponds to His sovereign decree and His sovereign permission. It's His governance over all events and all creatures for all time. In other, words, in other words, friends, there is a first and primary cause to everything that happens in this world. And that primary first cause is independent of any other causes in the world. And that is God. And yet God uses other secondary causes to accomplish His will, like the free choices of mankind. And yet we don't believe that God's sovereignty negates our responsibility. We don't believe that we're, we're puppets on the string. We don't believe that, that our lives are somehow like pre-programmed so that we're just robots here on earth. No, we understand God to have created us as free moral agents with wills and desires and thoughts. And yet in mind-blowing sovereignty, God's providence governs all creatures and all events and all free choices of men while himself is not the author or approver of sin the sin that we so often commit in our lives. Now, why am I front-loading all of this theology right at the beginning of the sermon before we're even digging into the text? Am I reading providence back into this story? After all, we don't see that word in the text. Did you find the word providence in there? I don't see it. Am I forcing a square peg into a round hole? No, not at all. Hold your finger there in Genesis 37, and I want you to flip back to Genesis 50. Spoiler alert, okay? This is the end of Jacob's life. Joseph's brothers, now reconciled to him, are fearful that when Jacob dies and passes off the scene, Joseph will want retribution for what we just read about in Genesis 37. And what does Joseph say to his brothers? Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now friends, if you don't know how this story unfolded, don't worry, we're gonna get there soon, okay? Don't sweat it. But for now, just look at how Joseph himself interpreted the events that we just read about here in Genesis 37. Whether, whereas the brothers meant, intended, purposed their actions for evil against Joseph, God intended those very actions to bring about great good to save many people alive. This is his providence in action. And yet, I don't know if you noticed this, when we read Genesis 37, not only was the word providence absent from the text, guess who or what else was absent from the text? God. Did you notice that? God was nowhere to be found. He's not mentioned at all. And all we saw throughout the chapter was just, just moral chaos and carnage. Friends, how often is this true in your and my life? When life goes haywire, 
when our family life is chaotic, when our relationships are racked by conflict, when suffering blindsides us, we think, where in the world is God in this mess, in my mess? Where is God? Surely Joseph was wondering that as he walked through this stuff. And yet as he looked back, he saw even through sin and circumstances that, that seemed to hide God's face, to hide his work, that God's hidden hand was directing everything that happened to a good and glorious end. His secret providence was at work, even though his purposes were not visible. So I've, I've spent nearly half the sermon now on the introduction. Okay? So now let me give you the main idea of Genesis 37, which in many ways could be the main idea of this whole section, Genesis 37 to 50. Here's the main idea. When things are so bad that it seems God is absent, entrust yourself fully to his good and hidden providence. When things are so bad that it seems God is absent, entrust yourself fully to his good and hidden providence. Four points this morning. Number one, God's providence upholds dysfunctional families. That's in verses one to four. Number two, God's providence proceeds from God's will. That's verses five to 11. God's providence, number three, directs random, that's in quotes, God's providence directs random events and, and encounters. That's verses 12 to 17. And then finally, number four, God's providence governs human wickedness. That's verses 18 to 36. If you were listening carefully and you have your thinking cap on, three of those main verbs that I use in my outline are pulled right from our statement of faith. God's providence upholds, proceeds, directs, and governs. Friends, I pray that this passage might lift your eyes in hope and again might be that theological pillow that God intends it to be, that when your life seems to crumble, you can rest in the good providence of your God. Number one, God's providence upholds dysfunctional families. These first four verses set the stage, don't they? Notice how verse two begins. These are the generations of Jacob. Now remember, this is the way that Moses has organized all of Genesis. 10 times he's given us this headline word, generations. He started with the generations of heaven and earth back in chapter two, and then he moved to the generations of Adam, now all the way down to the generations of Jacob. And this is the last time in the book this headline word is used. And in fact, the last time in the entire Old Testament. God's story of the line of promise will now unfold through the generations, through the family of Israel, the people of God. And the very next word in verse 2 narrows down who the focus of this section of Genesis is. What's the next word? Joseph. Being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Teenagers, listen, lest you're ever tempted to think that your faith doesn't matter until you get older, think again. Here's the God of heaven and earth choosing to work through a 17-year-old. Right away, we're shown how dysfunctional Jacob's family is. The end of verse 2 says that Joseph brought a bad report about the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah to Jacob. Now, the scripture is not explicit about whether Joseph is being a bratty tattletale or whether he's just giving this report at the request of his father. We don't know. But clearly, whatever Joseph told Jacob about Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher contributed to the fracturing of his relationship between him and his brothers. 
But the main reason for this dysfunction is is in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Now that, that same phrase, son of his old age, was used about Isaac being born to Abraham. So it's possible, it's possible that Jacob didn't love Joseph because he was born when Jacob was old, but rather because Joseph was to Jacob an Isaac-like son. He was the special son, the son finally given to the barren and beloved wife, Rachel, who then died, as we just saw, giving birth to Benjamin. Regardless, regardless, it just boggles my mind that Jacob doesn't know better than this at this point. Again, this is an SMH moment. Jacob, you saw firsthand how favoritism fractured your family when Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved you. You experienced firsthand the conflict from your favoring of Rachel over Leah. What in the world are you doing? And what does Jacob give Joseph as the token of that special favored status? What's a robe of many colors? Now that, that, that Hebrew that's translated colors there is a bit vague. We don't know exactly what it means, but it, the, the only other time this, this word, this Hebrew word is used in the scripture to designate a, a coat is in 2 Samuel 13 to, to describe the robe of a princess. So it's very possible that, that rather than being this amazing technicolor dream coat, what Joseph receives from Jacob is a long sleeve tunic that conveyed royal status. No wonder Joseph's brothers hated him. It wasn't just that Jacob played favorites. It's that he symbolized his favoritism in a gift that conveyed that their baby brother Joseph had a status that none of the rest of them had. Verse 4 concludes that things were so bad that that Joseph's brothers couldn't even speak the word of shalom to him. They couldn't even speak in a friendly, peaceful way. Now, friends, we're going to move on quickly through this text. But at this point, I just want to encourage you. If the actions of Jacob's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery were under the good providence of God, then so were the events that led up to that event. Joseph's bad report was umbrellaed by God's sovereignty, his providence. Although not commendable, Jacob's favoritism and the gift of the robe did not escape God's plan. The hatred of the brothers was governed by the Lord for his good purpose. So friends, let this truth just sink in. Maybe you're this morning and you're discouraged by the state of your family. Perhaps you're weighed down by the condition of your marriage. You're burdened by kids who show no signs of spiritual life. Perhaps relationships within your family are splintering. And worst of all, you can't see God. Friends, even at this foreboding moment in the story, in this intro to this story, take heart. God was at work in Jacob's dysfunctional family. He's preparing the way, and he's at work in yours. As William Cooper once wrote, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God will make his ways plain in due time, whether in this life or the life to come. But in the meantime, we can entrust our struggles, even our family life, to his good and sovereign care. Number two, God's providence proceeds from God's will. 
In verses 5 to 11, Joseph unwittingly accelerates the conflict between him and his brothers by telling them about two dreams that he had had. Now, you can see things escalating just by the brothers' response recorded. Okay, verse 5, look at it. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. So these guys go from the type of hatred that won't say shalom to Joseph to unrestrained jealousy. Why? Why did these dreams set them off so much? Well, notice what Joseph dreamed. In his first dream, he dreams that, that he and his brothers were, were binding grain sheaves in the field and suddenly like the ancient Near Eastern version of Disney's Fantasia, Joseph's sheaf comes to life. And stands upright while his brother's sheaves gather around Joseph's sheaves and bow down, painted homage. And Joseph's brothers didn't miss the point, did they? Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Clearly, Joseph is, is telling them by this dream that, that he would be their king one day. And of course, we know that not only would this eventually happen, but in the context of the brothers needing grain to keep them alive. But Joseph's dreams didn't stop there. In fact, in Genesis, dreams always come in twos. In this section of Genesis, the dreams always come in pairs, which highlights the fact that their origin is divine. They're from the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, God sometimes communicated this way. He communicated in dreams. And that's clearly what he's doing here. Even though God, friends, is never mentioned explicitly in the text, Here's the first major indicator that he's at work behind the scenes. He's communicating his plan through Joseph's dreams. Now, this second dream goes next level, doesn't it? We're now out of the field and we're into outer space. Joseph tells his brothers that in his dream, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. Man, now Joseph is not just the king of his family. He's pictured as the king of creation, right? Right? There's no higher position in his dream that he could take. So unbelievable was this image that Jacob rebuked Joseph for it. Though verse 11 says, eventually Jacob tucked it away in his mind, pondered it in his heart. He knew that it was possible that what Joseph was saying was true. Now, beloved, if you're following the storyline of, of Genesis up to this point, you know that, that time and time again, even as we just noted from chapter 35, God had promised that kings would come from the line of Abraham. He repeated the promise to Jacob. And not just kings, plural, but a king from the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and make all things right that had gone wrong. So think about it. Jacob gives Joseph a royal robe. Then Joseph has two dreams from the Lord about him being the king and his family bowing down to him. So if we're following the biblical storyline, if we didn't know the rest of the story, I think the right question is, is, is Joseph the one? Is he the great king or should we look for another? That's the question we should ask. And although we know that Joseph wasn't that ultimate king, Joseph's brothers eventually do bow down before him in Egypt. Everything that happens next within God's providence proceeds from his will. They're not random. Joseph didn't just happen to be at the right place at the right time for the rest of his life. He didn't just get lucky in Egypt and ascend the ranks. No, God worked out his will with meticulous detail to save the very brothers that hated him so much. 
You know, by scoffing at Joseph's dreams and, and his words, these brothers are scoffing at the very word and will of the Lord. Ultimately, the brothers weren't kicking against Joseph, but against the Lord. You know, it's the same in our lives. You know that. When we revolt at God's bidding in our lives, when we complain and we grumble at our circumstances, when we're jealous of the situation of others, ultimately, we're not bucking against them or get against some unknown force in the cosmos, we're bucking up against the providence of God. We're demeaning the outworking of his will for us. Friends, if all life's events are under God's providence and then we respond to life's events with sin in our hearts, what that exposes is a rebellion against the high king of heaven. Instead, we need a heart of humility that bows to God's providence and submits to the one who works all things, as Ephesians says, according to the counsel of his own will. Moving on quickly. Number three, God's providence directs random encounters. In verses 12 to 17, Israel sends Joseph to check on his brothers who were shepherding the herd near Shechem. Now, did your ears perk up when I read that? Where were the brothers? Shechem. What happened at Shechem several years earlier? Yeah, they went on a killing spree in response to Dinah's rape. So Jacob, now that the brothers are, are shepherding near Shechem, he's worried about their protection, and so he sends Joseph from Hebron in the south of Canaan, nearly 50 miles north to Shechem. Notice how random verse 15 sounds. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields. Who's the man? No clue. Where did he come from? Don't know. Why is he even mentioned in the Bible? Because Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see that this chance encounter, chance encounter, was not outside the reach of God's providential hand that guided Joseph to his brother's. Friends, let's do the logic. If this random man who redirected him to Dothan wouldn't have done so, Joseph would not have found his brothers. And if he would not have found his brothers, they never would have thrown him into the pit, never would have sold him into slavery. And if they had never done these things, Joseph clearly would not have gotten to Egypt. And if Joseph didn't get to Egypt then he wouldn't rescue his brothers from famine. And if he didn't do that, then the line of the promised king dies. And if that line dies, God's promises fail and the world unravels. No hope, no salvation. It all hinged on a random meeting between a random dude in a random field. But don't you see, armed with an understanding of God's governance over all events, there are no random meetings. Every encounter we have is purposed. This man met Joseph by divine appointment, not by sheer luck. You know, when Joseph looked back on this moment in his life, he shouldn't thank his lucky stars or karma or whatever, but rather praise God that even the seemingly smallest detail was under his meticulous control. Friends, there are no loose threads in the tapestry of grace that God is weaving in your life. Not one. 
There's nothing that we can chalk up to chance or luck or good fortune. You don't have a good day because you found that penny on the sidewalk and you don't have a bad day because the black cat crossed in front of you. It's not how it works. All the events that transpire in our lives come because God directs them. Many of you don't know this, but for years I played the trombone in bands and symphony orchestras. I'd like to think that's what attracted Lindsay to me. I don't know. You guys got to know me better than that. <laughs> Let me tell you, there are few things more boring than some low brass parts in certain operas and symphonies that I played in. I would just sit there. We, the low brass, would just sit there for hundreds of measures of music, pining away for our chance to play. And then here comes the great trombone line up ahead. Get ready. Here it comes. Then I'm done. And then I sit for another 100 measures and wait my turn again. Man, it seemed dumb, insignificant, random. But even I, the neglected low brass player, have to admit that my insignificant line fit into the whole texture of what the composer of the symphony was trying to convey. Even my small part had significance because of the whole thing. And that's how you and I must look at our lives. God is like the composer of the symphony. Every bit of it has a purpose. There are no loose strands and no out-of-place parts. God is weaving your story. He's weaving my story. He's composing your story like a symphony. He knows from the, the end, from the beginning, and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, Isaiah says. His counsel will stand. He will do all that he pleases. Even the smallest details, the most random encounters are governed by God. And if that is true, friends, how ought that to affect the way that you view those th type of encounters? How ought it to affect the way that we view our relationships with others and the witness that we give? It was God who caused me to bump into that random friend. It was God who led me here to sit on this plane next to this person. It was God who placed me in the cubicle next to this coworker. It wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. It was by providence. It should affect the way that we view our lives and our relationships and our witness. Number four, God's providence governs human wickedness. We see this in the rest of the chapter. Verse 18 says that Joseph's brothers in Dothan see him coming a long way off. Well, how did they see him? Well, probably because of his coat. They recognized this, this dang coat that he was wearing. It was the symbol of their hatred of him. And so although Joseph had done nothing to warrant this type of hatred, the brothers conspired to kill him. Verse 19, they said to each other, here comes this dreamer, literally the Lord of the dreams. Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of our pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Friends, this is, this is remarkable. This is Genesis 3 in motion in a Genesis 4 type of way. This should remind us of Cain and the murder of righteous Abel. So deep is the sin of mankind that brothers conspire to murder brothers. 
In verse 21, we learn that Reuben, who earlier we just saw committed this awful immorality against his father, now works to rescue Joseph, to restore him to his father. Maybe, maybe he's trying to get back in Jacob's good graces again. But he persuades the brothers to throw Joseph into the pit and leave him to die there of starvation with the hopes then that he would circle back around behind his brother's back and save Joseph. Verse 23 is tragic. When Joseph arrived, his brothers mugged him. They violently tore his tunic off of him. They threw him into the pit. Then verse 25 says, they sat down to eat. That's how callous these guys were. They left their brother to die and then they filled their bellies with food. It's just crass. The sons of Jacob were cold-hearted killers at heart. Chapter 42, verse 21, later in the story, says that the brothers saw the distress of Joseph's soul and they heard him beg for mercy and they did nothing. I think we're familiar with the rest of the story. It just so happened, again in quotes, that about that time, a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt passed by. And Judah, Judah, motivated in part for the money and in part out of a desire not to shed the blood of their brother directly, persuades the brothers to sell Joseph to the traders. Now, listen, we understand that even selling a human into slavery is deeply wicked. And yet Judah, in that suggestion, unwittingly becomes Joseph's savior. And so Joseph's brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, the cost of a common slave in that day. And of course, when Reuben returned, Joseph is gone. And knowing that Jacob, his dad, would hold him responsible as the firstborn for anything that happened to Joseph while he was with him, he, he uh, inspired the brothers to concoct this ruse. They used the blood of a goat. And they, they put the blood on the coat of many colors, the long sleeve tunic, to pretend that Joseph had been mauled by an animal. And again, think how deeply ironic this is in this story. Years before, Jacob had swindled Esau by using what? A dead goat's fur. And now his sons deceive him with dead goat's blood. This symbol of Jacob's love for Joseph, this coat, now becomes the symbol of his grief. Friends, this wickedness is repulsive. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse than Shechem, Q. Dothan, these wicked men sold their brother into slavery, knowing full well that it likely meant a death sentence for him in Egypt. And in all of it, Joseph is silent. He was talkative in the first 17 verses, wasn't he? Really talkative. But the narration changes that in verse 18. From the vantage of the narration, Joseph suffered in silence. He suffered unjustly. He was the victim of a horrific crime. And yet, even as we read of Jacob's grief, we see this note of hope, this ironic note of hope in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The Lord's providence had brought Joseph low, and yet in his suffering, there's this note of hope because he's near the palace. The Lord's plan is spring-loaded and ready to launch to save his people through the slave. Years later, Joseph looked back at his brother's hatred and their betrayal, and he could say with confidence, God worked your sins 
for good. God's apparent hiddenness did not equal his uncaring absence. He was at work the whole time. Friends, in closing, as Christians, we are not merely armed with a description of this truth of God's providence, but we're armed with the promise of it. Romans 8, 28 and 29 are verses that you should memorize and that you should put on loop in your head and in your soul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what is the purpose? What is the ultimate good that he will work? What do you want to happen? Is that it? Your best life now. Is that the purpose? Your earthly happiness. Get rich quick. The American dream. No. What's the purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Friends, at the end of the day, God's purpose for you and for me isn't our earthly happiness, but our holiness and our eternal joy. The ultimate purpose for which God works all things, even the horrific sin and the deepest suffering, is so that we might be made more like Christ. And if you say to yourself, you know what, that just sounds kind of boring. Friend, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Because the very reason that God chose you and called you and justified you is so that he might sanctify you and glorify you, conforming you to the image of his son, restoring you to be what God intended you to be in the very beginning. He's making us new, even using sins done by us and against us to chisel away what doesn't look like Jesus. Beloved, at the end of the day, Hang with me and I'm done. At the end of the day, we don't look at the story of Joseph and say, there's my assurance that God's providence is working for my good. It's one way, but it's not the ultimate way. Ultimately, we look to Jesus who just happened to have an experience like Joseph did. He too was silent in the face of suffering. He too was despised and rejected unjustly only to become the rescuer of those who abused him. Wicked men conspired to kill our righteous Lord. His road to the cross involved betrayal by another Judah, a Judah, a Judas, Judas, who sold him for money. Our Lord was stripped of his robes and of his clothes, and then he died an agonizing, ignominious death on the cross. And at the very moment that God seemed most absent on the darkest day in history, oh, our Lord was quite present. He was bringing about our salvation, our redemption. Yes, praise God. God used the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to eventually save them and preserve his promise. But Jesus Christ is far greater than Joseph. Our Lord is the Son of God whose betrayal and suffering achieved our salvation for those who would trust in him. And his rising from the pit ensured our justification and our life. And so, beloved, when sin and suffering seem to hide God's face, look to Jesus, not ultimately to Joseph. When your coworker scoffs at you for being a Christian, look to the one who suffered in your place. When you're withheld that promotion because you refuse to celebrate Pride Month, look to the author and finisher of your faith. 
when your family disintegrates and those closest to you let you down, look to Jesus, your suffering king. When the gloom of this, this fallen world clouds your experience of joy, look to the cross and to the empty tomb. Friend, as much as the story of Joseph encourages us about God's providence, you'll not find Joseph at the right hand of the Father. But the eternal Son, the risen Lord of glory, vindicated fully from His suffering, ruling and reigning for you. So that even when things are so bad that it seems like God is just gone, you can be confident that He isn't. His hidden providence flows to us like a river through the work of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, guaranteed for our good both now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you again and we just say thank you. We thank you that you're this Sovereign, you're this wise, you're this good. And so, Father, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts to believe this about you, to entrust ourselves to you, and ultimately to look to Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you. Even as we're going to sing now, Jesus, thank you. We can't comprehend it. Why you would do this for us. But we respond in praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.